Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's a delight to be here today with Daniel C. Kurtzer, who is the S. Daniel Abraham Professor of Middle East Policy Studies at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Following a 29-year career in the U.S. Foreign Service, Kurtzer retired in 2005 with the rank of career minister, where from 2001 to 2005, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, and from 1997 to 2001 as the United States Ambassador to Egypt, he remains active in track to diplomacy in the Middle East to this day and has written uh, many books and articles. Thank you so much for taking time to talk today. My pleasure. So to start right at the beginning, um, what inspired you to embark on a career in diplomacy? Well, at the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had graduated college uh, in the middle of the Vietnam War, uh, was eligible for the draft, uh, passed through at that time, uh, without being drafted, uh, went to graduate school for a PhD and soon realized that I did not want to spend my life at uh, the university, uh, although I enjoyed it at the time uh, this past 13, 14 years. Uh, and then one day I saw a notice on the board for the Foreign Service Examination and the idea of diplomacy had always been attractive to me and I applied for the Foreign Service got in and the rest was history. Uh, we had an extraordinary uh, 29 years, about half of that time uh, in Washington, about half in uh, Egypt and Israel with two different uh, assignments in each country. Amazing, amazing. So, you know, it's always hard to pinpoint within the whole person um, what leads to what types of decisions and moral deliberations. But what are some ways you might say that your Jewish identity impacted your decisions and actions as an, as an American diplomat in any ways? Well, in the first instance, uh, I entered the Foreign Service as a very proud Jew and as what I would say as a, um, as a known uh, uh, observant Jew, uh, one who made uh, as much uh, the practice of religion a part of my life as possible. Uh, and this was at a time in the 1970s when the Foreign Service was uh, experiencing some pressures with regard to uh, discrimination against women, discrimination against uh, African-Americans. And in my first meeting uh, to talk about my first assignment, uh, the gentleman from the Foreign Service said to me, well, you know, you're never going to be able to serve in the Middle East. Uh, now, I was coming into the Foreign Service with a PhD in Middle Eastern Studies. And so I smiled and I said, uh, tell me why. Of course, I knew why. And he wouldn't give me a straight answer. He said, well, you know, you can serve in India, which at that time was part of the Near East Bureau. You can serve in Iran. This was before the Iranian revolution. But he wouldn't articulate the view that as a Jew, I would not be permitted to serve in uh, Arab countries, uh, 
because of that. Uh, just a couple of years later, things had changed enough that I was assigned to Cairo and uh, then spent much of my career focusing on the Middle East and working in the Middle East. Uh, and therefore, the question of <clears throat> my visibility as a Jew, <coughs> excuse me, um, became part of my persona. Uh, meetings in the State Department uh, often were adjusted from Saturday morning to Friday afternoon. Uh, my colleagues knew that uh, when we went out to eat, I was going to have tuna fish or a salad. Uh, but more important than the observance issues, and I think it's part of your question, um, I just think that uh, Jewish values, uh, tikkun olam, and the idea of uh, equality of uh, access uh, uh, rights and uh, responsibilities uh, very much were part of my, uh, not only my upbringing, but my work. At one time, in fact, uh, during my service in Israel, I was asked by a convention of rabbis to give a talk, which I, I started out by telling them this was the wonderful opportunity for them to have to stay awake during my speech as challenging it was for us to stay awake during their sermons as uh, guiding our behaviors. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So, you know, since you brought up this issue of, of Jews in diplomacy in the Middle East, um, you know, dual loyalty is a, is a, is a very um, laden term, but what do you think is a reasonable form of dual loyalty and what's an unreasonable form? In that one might say, listen, I'm serving as an American, but I do have a love and deep attachment um, and, con and concerns and, and personal interest in regards to a country in the Middle East. Uh, so what, what are sort of the boundaries there in terms of how we think about that, 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 that challenge? Well, I think your description in the question is exactly uh, the way um, I conducted myself and would advise others, which is um, you take an oath to serve the interests of the United States and to carry out the policies of the United States, you have an opportunity uh, in the Foreign Service or the Civil Service to argue for the policies that you think are, are best, but then you have an obligation to carry them out and not to undermine them because of personal preferences. Uh, it's totally legitimate in our country, which has a multicultural and a pluralistic uh, population, to also have attachments to other countries. Irish Americans, Italian Americans, and uh, Jewish Americans or American Jews uh, who can proudly say that they are Zionists. In other words, they are fully committed to the idea of Israel uh, being a, uh, a full Jewish state within the international community. Uh, they can be supportive as possible. But at the end of the day, uh, if one does decide to work for our government, uh, that's where the primary a policy loyalty has to be. And there should be no question in a person's mind when it comes to that issue. Great, great. So um, how has religion and, and religious rhetoric impacted the ways in which people of different backgrounds have regarded one another in international relations? And do different religious identities on the diplomatic level inevitably lead to conflict or are there opportunities there as well? You know, religion is one of the most fraught questions in diplomacy, uh, largely because professional diplomats don't have a clue about how to deal with the uh, issues of religion. 
And religious leaders, unfortunately, too often are so busy defending themselves and distancing themselves from others that they don't reach out enough uh, and try to figure out what to do. Uh, even in our own community, there are still uh, some of our leaders who will not engage in inter-religious dialogues uh, or inter-communal dialogues uh, for fear that somehow that uh, compromises their own beliefs. Uh, for those of us who have practiced both diplomacy, have tried to remain observant of our own religious faith, but have also understood the role of religion in diplomacy, it's been a challenge uh, to find ways of uh, bringing people together, not only on the basis of political interests, but also on the basis of uh, finding a comity uh, between them uh, with regard to shared beliefs. Uh, for example, I have always found it extraordinarily uh, strange uh, that uh, people of all faiths are willing to fight, argue, shed blood over a holy place when uh, the Ribbono Shalom, God is laughing at us, saying, if it's truly holy, how can you possibly shed blood and have these kinds of arguments? It has to become shared space where people can observe their religious beliefs according to what they believe. So, so picking up on, on that last point, um, many of us, perhaps all of us, want to see a safe and prosperous Israel at peace with both its neighbors and non-Jewish inhabitants. What are some of the things, I mean, you can, you've, you can talk about this literally for hours, but what are some of the things you think Israel should be prioritizing right now to achieve that outcome today? Well, one of the things I've argued for many years, both when I was in government and uh, since leaving in um, both my public speeches and my publications, is uh, to find common ground on as many of the, um, what I call, technical issues that divide Israelis and Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs, um, and also then to work on the narrative uh, uh, differences and challenges between them. What I mean by that is um, there are a number of core issues uh, that have always been part of the roadblock to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian issue. The question of territory and boundaries, security, the future of settlements, uh, the question of uh, uh, who controls Jerusalem or can it be shared, uh, the refugee issue. Um, those are very fraught issues, um, but they're resolvable issues if both sides are prepared to uh, at least find uh, some uh, ground where they can uh, share rather than claim exclusivity. What's much more challenging in trying to resolve this conflict are narrative issues. Uh, who started it? Who's to blame? Why is our narrative uh, only true and the other narrative is not? Um, it's a particular issue, for example, in the question of uh, how the Palestinian refugee problem uh, started. And you know there's a significant literature about uh, who's responsible for it and whether one side must claim uh, a total uh, absolution for whatever it did uh, and apologize in historical terms. Um, those are the much more challenging issues because they get into this realm of, of narrative, of the way people see themselves and their cause. So as a diplomat, we've tried mostly to focus on the issues that can be resolved through compromise 
and mutual concessions, but it really is up to all of us, including spiritual leaders, uh, community leaders, uh, and political leaders to also start to grapple with those narrative issues. Just to look at one concrete pressing and relevant issue now, what's your, what's your perspective on the current discussion around a unilateral, unilateral movement towards possible annexation today? Well, it, it, it's, it's a killer uh, move for the possibility of moving forward toward a political solution. You know, I've, I've done up for presentations um, two slides, one which shows the dilemma that Israel faces with regard to democracy, a Jewish state, and control over all the territory that it has occupied since 1967. And then the second slide is the Palestinian dilemma. Uh, they claim uh, control, ownership over all of what they say is historic Palestine, and yet the plan put forward by the Trump administration would give them uh, a kind of mishmash of small islands of control, um, significantly less than even the 22% of Palestine that they say they're prepared to accept as their state. And so the idea that under these circumstances, um, an Israeli government would uh, start annexing part of that territory uh, without agreement uh, from the Palestinians suggests that it's an Israeli government that is uh, interested in foreclosing the possibility of resolving uh, the issues that can be resolved. Uh, if Israel ends up at the end of a reasonable peace process that includes what we call swaps, in other words, some of the settlements remain in place, but some parts of Israel would then be transferred in compensation, if Israel ends up with 78% of historic Eretz Yisrael uh, as a result of that agreement, this would be a phenomenal victory for Zionism, for historical Zionism. And all of the Zionist founders would, would be laughing somewhere up in heaven uh, at the uh, victory that they've achieved. But if the appetite for more than 78% forecloses the possibility of reaching some kind of an agreement with the Palestinians, then not only would this be a sad day for Zionism, but even you know, the former Zionist leaders like Jabotinsky would argue that this is a terrible mistake because if Palestinians are ready to make peace and ready to accept a small slice of this land, the Zionist movement, the Israeli people and government should be equally ready to make a deal on the basis of that agreement. Thank you. Uh, to honor your time, just one last question for you today. Uh, this has been very insightful for me, so thank you so much. Um, a piece of Torah that has inspired you, either a, uh, a Torah value, a Torah text that continues to kind of walk with you in, in your work and, and sort of guide some part of your compass. Well, there are actually several. Um, I would pick one from uh, the uh, five books and one from uh, Tehillim. I mentioned the Tehillim issue earlier. It's from, I think, Psalm 89, if I'm not mistaken, where it says, Chesed demet nifgashu, tzedek v'shalom nashaku. The Ribbono Shalom, the psalmist, is telling us, you know, if you can live at the intersection of these four ethical values, which are at the core of our Jewish value system, you're gonna be okay and life would be okay. And, you know, I'm not suggesting uh, that I'm an angel and that I actually live exactly at that intersection, 
but it's an aspiration that I think all of us should be shooting for. The, uh, the Torah text, uh, actually, we just read it. Uh, Jewish people have just come through uh, Yamsuf. They've seen all the miracles that uh, uh, released them from enslavement. And uh, they get to the other side and they start complaining again to uh, Moshe. And he basically says to them, why are you complaining to me? Get up and go. Uh, the, the word, you know, God admonishes him to, to tell this to the Jewish people, which really suggests this issue of agency. Um, you know, relying upon miracles, ain som chim al hanes, relying upon, you know, our religious beliefs to relieve us of the obligation to make our world better, to do what's right, um, is to me an anti-Jewish value. Uh, sure, uh, we should believe that uh, God has uh, imminence in, in our world, but uh, we're also told to, to just do what we have to do. And if we do that on the basis of sound, moral, ethical, and reasonably sound political judgments, uh, we're going to be okay, I think. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. We encourage folks to uh, check out Professor Kurtzer's uh, writings. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi.